You're listening to a DM podcast. What, what's always been taught to me with strokes is the quicker you get to help, the more likely you're going to survive. That was what was driving me to get there. I've got to get to help. I've got to get to help. I can't just stop here and give up. That's not, not my nature. Push yourself. Get there. We'll worry about getting out of the car when we get there, you know? The Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Radri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. One of the reasons I really enjoy hosting this podcast is there's so many amazing and resilient people I get to meet and chat to. Today's podcast is no different. Steve Mogridge has a long work career in and around mines. At one point, he was driving those really large dump trucks that haul 150 tonnes. And today he drives the bus that brings the fly-in, fly-out workers to the mine sites. He's seen a lot, he's experienced a lot, and he knows a lot. But something happened last year that really challenged him in a way that he'd probably never imagined. He's actually really lucky to be alive and he's here to tell us his story. Hi Steve. Hi Lana, how are you today? I'm good. That's good. It's really good to have a chance to have a chat with you because your story really hit me when I when I read about it. But before we get into that, you work as a bus driver. Could you tell me what do you like most about your work? as a bus driver is it the people that you get to meet or chat to or is it the spectacular landscapes out there in western australia i think lana it's a bit of both i think it's a 50 50 i love people i've always been a people person uh, all through my working life i've worked with people i've had um, takeaway food shops my own shops and uh, you got direct contact with the people or the customers and in the bus, it's the same. You're getting people coming on the bus all the time and you're saying good morning, good evening, how are you? And you're introducing yourself to people, you know. So I love that. But the countryside, look, seriously, i got the perfect job. I get paid to go sightseeing throughout the bush, you know. And I travel hundreds of kilometres nearly every day, you know. I go up as far as Waluna, which is... 560 kilometres north of Kalgoorlie here, or I go down to Esperance, which is 400 kilometres in the opposite direction. So, and and sometimes we even get the odd trip to Perth. So, getting to see the countryside, love it. Get to meet the people, love it. You must meet some really interesting characters on those on those buses. Oh, <laughs> do we? Well, yeah, mining these days, it's a young person's game. And we're getting um, people 20, 21 years old coming on the bus and they've never been out here before and think, well, what have I come to? And then the other thing, you got the oldies, my age, 
of people who've worked in the mines all their lives, you know. And then, then you come across people like myself who never worked in the mine until you're 60 years old, you know. <laughs> and all of a sudden you think, wow, what's going on here, you know. So, yes, you do meet some very interesting characters. And you get you get to hear a lot of stories. Like um, I did a charter yesterday and one of my um, one of my passengers was actually a manager of a visitor centre, and at the end of it, she came up to me. She said, "I'm going to give you a job. You got to come and work for me." And um, they've got a a, a tram, which uh, it's a tourist tram, which goes around Kalgoorlie, around the city. She wants me to come and manage that for her and run that, <laughs> as if I haven't got enough to do. <laughs> But it shows you have such amazing social skills, though, Steve, doesn't it? And it shows that you're really good with people. And that's something that's come from my parents, I think. You know, Mum and Dad were always out there, and Dad was a great speaker, and I don't know how many weddings he hosted, and he was a maitre d'oeuvre everywhere he went. There's the old man standing up there saying something, you know. And uh, it, when you're working with people all the time, you become comfortable with people. And you just relax with them, you know. And you can you learn to yeah. read people too. Yeah. And then one of the things you you learn is is, is to judge what's going to be the reaction when people when you say things to people. Like here in Kalgoorlie, we do tours. Part of the tour is going down the red light district, the old brothel area. And I I do the customary thing. Would anyone be offended? And of course, everyone puts their hands up and says, "No, but get take us there, take us there, you know, let's go." So, and I I think I've in the two years I've been doing that, I've had one person offended, and um, I actually had to drop him off <laughs> down the road while I did the red light district, and then picked him up on the way back, you know. But it turned out he was a, a, a priest or something, and yeah, he he didn't appreciate it. <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, it, it's just just a, a a trait that I've developed over the years, and um, I've always been in in like I said in the public, and always been able to talk to people. So, did you grow up in Kalgoorlie, or did you grow up somewhere else and then just end up being an import, so to speak? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I, I, I'm not a local yet. Um, I've been here 13 years, but I'm not a local. I originally came from Melbourne. I was there until 1967, I was only 10 years old, when Dad got a new job over here in Perth, which was at that stage just a country town. <laughs> and um, yeah, we come over in 1967, been here ever since. Yeah. So what's a regular workday like for you, Steve? So you, you're chartering, you're driving the chartered buses that drive those fly-in, fly-out workers, but... What does your day-to-day schedule look like? And is it different locations, different mine sites all the time? Yes, um, I'm all over the place. Um, I'm, we have drivers who prefer to do local stuff around Kalgoorlie. And we have some drivers like myself who prefer to go bush and, and work away for a few days. And that's that's where I come in. I'll go up to Leinster, Laverton, which is about 400 kilometres out. And, and go out there and stay there for two or three, four, five days or whatever, and um, just cutting people from the um, from the airport to the mines and then back again. Sometimes we do what we call shutdowns, which is a maintenance period for the mines. And I had one recently at a mine that was um, another 200 kilometres east of Laverton, so a good 600 kilometres out in the middle of nowhere, this mine, and I spent 12 days out there and I was doing 
carting people backwards and forwards from the camp to the mine side every day. So I have to ask you, so what, what do you do when you're not driving? So if you're driving everybody out in the morning and then driving everybody back at the end of the day, what do you do during the day? Watch TV. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that could be no. that could be really bad. No, <laughs> yeah, you can get quite hooked on YouTube and stuff like that, Netflix and things like that. But no, <laughs> I take um, a lot of camera gear with me. Um, being a photographer, I like to get out and do a lot of photography. So during the day, I'll, I'll just get my cameras out and go for a walk through the bush and do a 10k hike out in the bush somewhere wow. and just get some photos, you know, and look around for wildlife. Yeah, there's plenty of wildlife around. Yeah, you know, go chasing kangaroos yeah. under bushes and stuff like that to get the odd photo. Yeah, so um, yeah. It, oh, wow. It's always something to do, and if you get really bored, they've got a, a, a com, commons room where you, they've got the pool table set up or a dart table or the big screen TV. Um, there's always heaps of food. There's always something to do, and there's, there's a couple of guys there that probably aren't sleeping, so they'll come out and have a chat with you. And you know, and then in the afternoons, the pub opens. The, all these places have got little pubs in them, so you can go and have a beer or something like that, you know, so... There's always something to do, you know, and uh, you never get bored. Oh, I don't. (laughs) Yeah. So last November, let's walk through that day. You were in your company ute and you were driving from Kalgoorlie to Lenora, correct? Yeah, I was actually on my way up to Leinster. Um, I had a contract up there. Ah. Um, Leinster's about 360 kilometres north of here. It's one of BHP's big nickel uh, camps. This particular day, I can remember it so well. It's just so vivid in my mind. I was, I was actually driving between Menzies and Leonora. Menzies is about 130 kilometres north of Kalgoorlie here. Uh, everything was going nice. It was a beautiful sunny day. It's about 25, 26, and I thought, oh, this is perfect, you know. And just enjoying a bit of music, had my, um, my music playing, and... Um, I was about 50 kilometres, halfway between Menzies and Leonora. And the left-hand side of my body just went weird. It, it just felt very, very strange. What do you mean? What do you mean it felt weird? It felt numb. I, I could see everything, but I couldn't feel it. And I got my right hand and pinched my left arm and pinched it hard and couldn't feel it. And I thought, this is not right. And... My left arm was sitting on the steering wheel and it just dropped away from the steering wheel, had no grip. And at the same time, my left leg went dead and I couldn't move it. And I picked it up by the trousers with my hand and then dropped it down again. It just just fell. And so you're you're driving along at, at, in a yeah. ute. Was it a, a manual or an automatic ute? Yeah, a manual ute, five-speed manual. And yeah. I was doing 110 kilometres an hour on the open highway now, this is a major highway. You've got road trains running backwards and forwards. These are you know, two or three trailer trucks, and they're five minutes apart. You know? wow. So I'm driving along, 110 kilometres an hour, 50 kilometres from Leonora, and thinking, what the hell do I do? You know, This is weird. Yeah. But over the years, I've done first aid training, um, resuscitation, all that. I've also worked in the hospital when I was young and heard a lot about strokes. And, of course, my mother died of stroke. And the first thing that came to my mind was, I'm having a stroke. 
left hand side of my body one whole side of your body is gone numb that's a clear sign it's a stroke and mentally were you feeling okay mentally i was starting to panic i, I think i would be too I, I really started to panic because at this stage i was 60 66 i just turned 66 that was the day or that was the age my mother died of oh. a stroke um, and that was the very first thing that went through my mind. It must have been terrifying. You know, I have to do something about this. I've got to get to help. And I knew the only hospital near me was in Leonora, 50 kilometres away. That's the closest medical aid. Menzies has got nothing. It's got 50 people in it. It doesn't have a police station. Right. So what do I do? I've got <clears throat> half of my body working, half not. I've got a manual car. I'm sitting on 110. I've got to do something. Mm. My mother died. That's what kept going through my mind is my mother died of this. So I decided I'm just going to keep going. I'll, I can use the accelerator, just keep going. Is there any phone reception there where you were? No. Where I was at that time, no, there wasn't. I was right in between towns and right. um, I didn't get phone reception for another 30 kilometres. So wow. when I got closer to Leonora, then I picked up. A faint signal when I was 20 kilometres out, but it was only very faint. Right. And I thought, first thing I've got to do is ring my wife. <laughs> and I'm still panicking. I was, I was sweating. I was panicking. Were you able to call your wife? Because you've got one hand on the wheel and one hand on the, on the one foot on the accelerator. I mean, how would you, do you have voice control um, in your car? Yeah, I, I had, I had um, Bluetooth. Yep. So I was able to call my wife and say, darling, look, um, I'm on my way to Leonora. I'm about 20 kilometres south of Leonora, and the phone was cutting in and out. And it took a couple of moments before I could actually get through and get the whole message to her. And the first thing she's, oh my God, you know, what do you want me to do? And she was in Kalgoorlie, which is you know, 180, 200 kilometres behind me. She says, I'm coming up to Leonora. So she jumped in the car straight away. And by the time I got to Leonora, she was on the road wow. on the way up to Leonora. Then I had to ring the boss. Really? You you had you had an <laughs> I rang the I would, boss. That would be the last and... thing on my mind. <laughs> no. <laughs> Better tell the boss well, that I'm gonna call in sick. No, but <laughs> Well, we, we had a situation where if I didn't do the job, nobody else was gonna do it. And we had, you know, a couple of hundred miners that were about to transport. Yeah. So somebody but, something but I, had to be done. I gotta say, Steve, that shows your yeah. work ethic. It really does. You're having a stroke, driving along, well, and, and, and what's on yeah. the top of your mind is, I better let the boss know yeah. I'm not going to be able to transport those people. That's what's on the top of your mind while you're yeah. unable to use well, your right. left that, side of your body. That's what came to mind, yeah. I said to John, um, this is Steve, and he said, yeah, how you going? What are you doing? And I said, mate, I'm having a stroke. And he said, are you joking? And I said, no, I am not joking. I'm having a stroke. He says, where are you? And I said, I told him where I was. And he says, ah, oh, you're joking me. And I said, I'm not. And I hung up on him. And that was it. I was that, that angry because you know, I, was, I was panicking. And, and, and all the time, my mother kept coming back in my mind. Oh, I, kept, I kept seeing my mum. Yeah. yeah. That was in my eyes, my mum. Yeah, and the heart was going pounding. Did you have any pain, Steve? Was there just the numbness no. or was no. there no pain? Yeah. Okay. It was numbness, and it was, it's a hard feeling. It's a hard feeling to describe it. The, the numbness was there, but there was something, another feeling that was going through the muscles, and 
it was weird. It was just as if my leg wasn't mine or my arm wasn't mine. It was somebody else's. You know when you sleep yeah. on a body part wrong or, you know, you can get pins and needles yeah, yeah, or something? Yes. And then And the pins and needles, yeah. was it like that? I'm just trying to – I've never had a stroke, so I'm just trying to – It wasn't to, the pins and needles, but, yeah, yeah you know how you, you if you sleep on your arm, it goes numb. Yeah, it goes, goes kind of really dead. Weird and you, it's like you – yeah. Exactly like that. How how did you keep yourself going to Leonora? How did you did you use any method to keep yourself to you know because I think some people would just pull over and just say I'm I'm going there's nothing I can do about it but you just kept on kept on keeping on so was there something yeah. that that yeah. that kept you focused and saying I just have to I have to get to Leonora Yes, yeah. What, what's always been taught to me with strokes is the quicker you get to help, the more likely you're going to survive. That was what was driving me to get there. I've got to get the help. I've got to get the help. I can't just stop here and give up. That's not, not my nature. Push yourself. Get there. We'll worry about getting out of the car when we get there, you know? Yeah. And when, when, uh, when I got into Leonora, I had to turn a corner. I couldn't change gears or anything. I couldn't use a clutch or anything. So um, I just went round the corner, <laughs> bump, 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 car pulled out, and I gave it a little bit of accelerator, try and get it up the hill, and I got up to up to the um, up to the hospital. By this time, we're really going bang, 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 bang. bang. And I, oh god! And I pulled up out front of the hospital and just let it stall. And that was it. <laughs> just I just put my right foot on the brake, stopped the car, and went boom, bang. We oh good. Well, we're here. Now what do we do? Right in front of me was the hospital, but they're thinking of the handicapped people and they've got this big ramp yeah. going up. So I managed to get out of the car and I'm, I'm trying to imagine one leg and dragging the other. And that was basically what I was doing. Wow. Um, dragging myself to the ramp and I had the arm, um, arm supports going up the railing. Yeah. So I was using my right hand to pull myself up the railing. And yeah, it must have looked like I was drunk or something, you know. Was there anybody there? Was anybody outside the hospital? No, nobody outside. But um, as it turned out, there was people inside. There was a couple of locals inside. But when I got to the door, the door was closed and locked. But there was a red button pressed, and there was a sign pressed button for service. So I pressed this button, and this nurse said, "Can I help you?" And I said, "Yes, I'm having a stroke." Next thing, the door got flung open. There was two nurses there with a wheelchair. A doctor was there. They quickly put me in a wheelchair, wheeled me straight into their casualty room, um, helped me onto a stretcher in there, and then um, they got ECG going, and uh, the doctor was fiddling around for a big TV screen in the corner, and that was a telehelp service from Perth. So they had another doctor on that telehelp. And then... These two other ladies, I've no idea who they are, who they were, where they came from, but they suddenly appeared. But apparently it turned out they were visiting and doing a, some sort of um, auditing of the hospital. They decided they were going to join in and help as well. And I think, don't ask me why, they had to cut my shirt off. And this lady said, can I cut your shirt off, please? <laughs> Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> they cut my shirt off. Take take it away. Um, <laughs> I said, that's all right. I, only Work in country Australia. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> I, just, I just had wires and plugs and everything else attached to me going left, right. I had a drip put on me. Yeah. 
But the one thing they um, they were very concerned about, besides the stroke, was my blood pressure. It suddenly plummeted. Right. And it's getting down under 100. And I thought, well, that's not good. So they were very concerned about that. And that's when they, they decided, look, you know, we're not, we can't do anything here. Leonora is a very basic, like a, a medical outpost. They've yeah. got nothing, you know. Yeah. One, one, one bed in ED, that's all there is. Right. All right. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes, minus the wings, and the Isuzu D-Max and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. So, Royal Flying Doctor time. They rang the Royal Flying Doctor, got that all organised. The Royal Flying Doctor had to come down from Meekathara, which was another few hundred kilometres away. That was the closest they could get. And uh, I just had to lay there for a couple of hours until they arrived. And when they arrived, um, St John's Ambulance came round. They put me in the ambulance, took me to the airport. Leonora was terrific. They just did what they could, you know, but they didn't have much to go by. And they just knew, look, we need to get you to Perth. You've had a stroke, you've got the obvious signs, but we need to know what damage has been done and can it be fixed. And at that stage, I was in a pretty pretty sad state. My wife had arrived at long last and she was upset. Yeah, And, and she knew the nurses because she worked at, um, at Leonora Hospital for, for a couple of weeks. But when they were transporting me out, uh, she had to drive back to Kalgoorlie, which was 230 kilometres away. And then turn around and drive straight to Perth, which was another 600k. So the poor girl drove 230k's up to Leonora from Cal, back to Cal, and then to Perth. There's two types of stroke. Some people are not aware of this, but there's two types of stroke. One of them is a clot and one of them is a bleed. And the treatment for those different two different types of stroke are different. So That's when correct. they talk about the golden hour or trying to get to medical assistance as quickly as possible, it's about getting to medical imaging and MRI so yes. they can figure out, is this a bleed or is this a clot? And then they can give you the correct medication to either dissolve the clot or to, to stop the bleed and, and create a clot or you know, basically to stop the yes. bleed. It becomes critical in this after-stroke period to, as quickly as possible, get a patient to imaging. And there's a few challenges with imaging because the imaging equipment that you, the, the MRI, as you know, is huge. It's a massive, big, heavy and very expensive piece of equipment. And the majority of regional hospitals do not have them just being, simply because of the size of them, the cost of them, the availability, the budgets, etc. They just don't have them. And, and having the trained staff to operate exactly, them as well. Exactly, exactly. And so when somebody has a stroke and they live in rural or they work in rural and or remote Australia, the, it becomes critical to transport them to a tertiary hospital where they can get that imaging done 
and they can determine if it's a clot or a bleed. So did they work out for you if it was a clot or a bleed? Not at Leonora. But once you got to Perth? But once I got to Perth, now this this was miraculous because we left Leonora Airport at half past three on the Royal Flying Doctor we took off. At five o'clock that afternoon, I was actually being wheeled into the machine itself. Wow. That's how quick we got there. And it was just just miraculous. It really was. The flight was just, you know, the pilot, he was terrific. He came and said hello to me before we took off and assured me we were going to have a comfortable flight and everything else. And then we took off. And my only complaint I had about the aircraft was I didn't have a, a, a window. I had a little porthole. But I couldn't get up to see. That's right. <laughs> see when you're on a stretcher going. and you don't get to see through the windows, that's just the way <laughs> it goes, yeah, Steve. Was, if you want to get a window view, you've in. got to be sitting up. That's just one of the rules. <laughs> but the nurse was lovely. She says you're not missing much, and I thought, oh come on, this is this is my favourite area. This I love it up here. But we got to Perth. We got to Jandicott Airport, which is just south of the city, mm-hmm. and. Um, it was half past four, and now you can imagine, that's peak hour, right? And we've got one freeway, the Quinana Freeway. We had to get onto the Quinana Freeway. So the flight landed straight out of the plane, straight into the ambulance, and off we went. Red lights, sirens, a lot, you know, and off we went up this freeway. And all I can see out the back window was the bridges over the freeway going, boom, boom, boom. I don't know how fast we were going, but at five o'clock that afternoon, I was being wheeled into the MRI machine itself. That's how quick everything happened. My daughter said she was tracking it, so I don't know how she did it, but she was tracking it. She said it took them 12 minutes to get from Jandicott Airport to Charlie Gardner's Hospital, and Charlie Gardner's is in the city itself. As soon as I got into the MRI, straight away, they picked it up. Now, on the right-hand side of my head, because when you get a stroke, it's the opposite side of the head to the body that it affects. Ah, right. So it had to be on the right side of your head. I had the, had a, a bit of um, plaque in my brain, and it actually come from the carotid artery in my neck, and they were actually able to, through the MRI, pick out exactly where the plaque had broken away. And so the carotid artery was 95% blocked. Wow. And they said that's where the problem was. So the the plaque broke away from the carotid artery, travelled up into the head, caused a stroke. Then over the next week, I had to wait a week before I could get any surgery done to fix it. Over the week, the the plaque dissolved, and then, um, but at the same time, my blood pressure was was just dropping. It kept dropping, and I think once so, you got down to seventy over ten or something like that. You know, so it was pretty low. Yeah. I was really bad. Eventually, they trans- they transferred me to Fiona Stanley Hospital, just south of the river. Uh, they got a stroke ward there, a special stroke ward, and they put me in there. And then um, after a week of monitoring me and getting the blood pressure up and stabilised, they took me into theatre to put a stent into the um, carotid artery. And the funny thing is, they put the stent in through the wrists and fed it up through my arm into the neck and all I had the only scar seriously was a two millimeter cut a two millimeter cut in my wrist that was the only scar throughout the whole thing and they put this four inch long 100 millimeter long 
stent into my neck. Aren't they clever? They're still there now. They are so clever, aren't they? They put me on the table, and because they were doing it all under x-ray, they couldn't have a theatre full of people like you normally do. So they had a team of anaesthetists. There was about five of them, I believe. They got me all numbed up, because it was all done under local, but my blood pressure was still dicey. Once they got me stabilised and ready for the surgeon... The anaesthetic team left the room and went into another room and were looking through a glass panel into the theatre. And then the surgeon started and uh, she was going for about 10 minutes and all of a sudden I just flatlined. I just, nothing happened. You know, I was gone. All I can remember is people running in and, the, you know, I was out. I was, I was just, everything went grey and misty and I thought, what the hell, you know? Then all of a sudden I can stay, stay, and then people are slapping me and all this sort of thing. The surgeon stopped and they, they moved the x-ray machine out and they gave me a whole pile of drugs. 45 minutes later, they got me stabilised so they can continue. And then oh, they went back Steve. in and finished it off. Yeah. Oh, my so they gosh. Had, they had two tries at me, <laughs> but they never got me. <laughs> wow. Then I end up in ICU for a week after that. And then uh, they moved me up to the stroke ward. Did you start to get movement back in your left side at any point? Yes, yes. Yeah, when did that change? That started changing as as the clot dissolved straight away. And I started getting movement. By the time I was ready for theatre, I was actually walking. Wow. So, yeah, I still have um, weakness in my left-hand side. I've got no grip on my left hand. And I've also got a shake. Uh, they call it benign tremulous. And... Um, I had that just prior to the stroke, but it's got worse after the stroke. And I just don't hold anything in my left hand because I just drop it. Right. Yeah? And I've got a bit of bit of still got a bit of numbness in the left leg as well. So. But you can you can walk okay, and you can you yeah, can yeah, generally yeah, yeah. function. Except you you're just really aware, acutely aware yeah. that your left hand is is just not able to do a yeah. lot. I, I just put my left hand in my pocket and forget I have it. And I presume you're right-handed, Steve. Are you right-handed? Thankfully, yes. Thankfully. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I go for 10-kilometre walks now, and, wow. you know, I, I don't have a problem, you know. I'm driving the bus three months after my stroke. I had it in November. In, end of February, I was back at work, back driving the bus. Wow. They breed him tough. They breed him tough. W.A. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was a case, you know, I, I didn't want to retire. I was too too young to retire anyway. Yeah. So I just thought, oh, stuff it. I'm going back to work, you know. So back I went. Yeah. And, um, you know, even now, 40, 50 hours a week is, is not unusual. So Has this has this um, stroke changed your attitude on life or, or the way you look at things or perceive things? Immensely. I have a very unique appreciation for everything. Everything. You know, I wake up in the morning, I appreciate that. You know, and I'm just so thankful um, of the people around me. You know, I've got a more sympathetic understanding of people. My poor wife, she's, uh, she's clapping her hands and thinking, thank God this has happened because she's had um, some medical issues over the past and I haven't handled it too well in the past. But now I've got a better understanding of what she's gone through. A little bit more empathetic, maybe. Very, very empathetic, and I'm just—I just bend over backwards more to help people. You know, I want to do things for people because so many people on that day, on that particular day, November the sixteenth, there were so many people I never met before in my whole life who were rushing around bending over backwards to help save my life. Mm. 
so my way of paying back is to say, right, okay, the Royal Flying Doctor Service, first of all, tick, 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 tick. I will do anything. I'll bend over backwards to help those guys because they're terrific. The staff up at Leonora Hospital, oh, seriously, they never knew me from a bar of soap. Yes, they did know my wife, but they never knew me. Yeah. And what did they do? They went overboard. Even those two ladies sitting in reception wanted to cut your shirt off. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, go for it. <laughs> they didn't offer to take my pants off. That's, that's okay. Good. I was thinking, that's good. Because your wife wouldn't have been pleased with that there. proposal at all. <laughs> but yes, I'm I'm very empathetic. I, I, I have a, a a very different outlook, and I just appreciate a lot. It's also made me talk a lot more about my issues and about issues that men don't talk about you know I'll, I'll talk to the to the chooks come home you know um about anything and i'm a great supporter now that men should speak up yeah and even at work you know someone will come up to me one of the guys will come oh geez you know i've got this and i've got that first thing i'll say look go and see somebody go and talk to them you know you gotta gotta face this issue and talk to it and do something about it before it's too late. It's a sad culture that we have where where men sort of feel that they just have to soldier on or just you know bear. Yeah, it, it's that's it's right. really not it's not a healthy culture. So I think the more we can encourage men of all ages, from young teenagers, I've got two young teenage boys, all the way up yes. to men in their later years, it's it's okay to talk to people. Did you have any signs or symptoms or worries before you had your stroke that you didn't voice, that you just sort of kept to yourself and thought, no, I don't want to talk about? No, no, no. I was, I was pretty healthy. And, um, you know, I was doing the right thing, losing a bit of weight and, you know, eating well and doing all those sort of healthy things, you know. So everything was going really great. I have had issues and before, you know, depression and stuff like that, and I've dealt with it. I've gone to the, to the psychs, and I've gone to the docs, and you know, gone to the specialists and and done something about it, you know, but never really talked about it. And that was the difference. Yeah. You know? Yes, a lot of guys will go and do something about it, but they keep it quiet. Don't tell anyone. Yeah, if you help one person, it makes all the difference. Do you have any advice for anybody regarding strokes or symptoms or, yeah, do you have any advice from what you've experienced that you would like others to know? If it's anything like mine, you will not have any pre-warning. It just suddenly happened. Keep yourself fit. That's really it. You've got to keep yourself not just fit but active. Walking. I walk wherever I can and when I'm away in these bush camps and mining camps they've all got walking trails now around them they're all thinking of people like myself get get something that's going to make you active you know? and that's really really important that's something that got pushed home to me when when i was recovering from the stroke was you got to keep yourself active take precautions eat properly mm. so you got to start by saying to yourself wrong look at my lifestyle get a hobby which involves walking my my hobby is cameras photography and I'll walk through the bush for miles to get the right shot. You know, just have something that inspires you to walk. The, you know, the one, th one thing about Kalgoorlie is you're surrounded by bush and it's beautiful. 
I can sense the love that you have for the landscape locally. Now, you had said just before we uh, started this interview that you are about to retire with your wife and you're moving from Kalgoorlie to Perth. How are you going to manage that, Steve? You're going to be removing yourself from that landscape that you love so much. Are you going to travel a lot outside of Perth or are you going to have a big garden or what are you going to do? No garden. I'm I'm still going to travel. As I said, I'm, I'm into my videos. Uh, and I'm into my photography so that's going to be my driving force I've got a big trip coming up next year already planned (laughs) four weeks of travelling through the centre of Australia Alice Springs and all through there um, with my daughter and uh, we're just going to go on a four wheel drive camping trip throughout the centre of Australia Um, we're going to have Lake Eyre um, Udnadatta and all those Coopapedes and all those places and Kings Canyon, Ayers Rock and the Olgas (gasps) The Olgas, oh, the best place on earth. If you get a chance, go to the Olgas. I've never seen anything so stunning as the Olgas. That sounds so good. Now, by the time you're doing that, I'm hoping that the ongoing project that the Royal Flying Doctor Service has with the Australian Stroke Alliance has come to fruition. So they've, there's this... Um, a number of organisations, I think it's about seven or eight organisations, including Melbourne University and others that have come together and are working industriously to create a small mobile uh, MRI or imaging piece of equipment, almost like a motorbike helmet or something, like a like a helmet that you would put onto a head that's small and lightweight. And these helmets mm-hmm. are being... Um, uh, design trialed and and so forth at the moment with the idea that these would be able to be available in planes and helicopters in ambulances in regional hospitals all over the place yep. so that when somebody like yourself drives up you know with one whole side of your body paralyzed and and yep. staggers drags yourself into the clinic and says I'm having a stroke they can pop this thing on your head immediately and determine if you're having a clot or a bleed and then immediately yes. be able to give you treatment for whichever one it is. That's a, a very exciting project. It's been ongoing for a couple of years and it's it's progressing really mm. quickly. But hopefully, yeah, by the time you're travelling across central Australia and and as <laughs> others are listening to this over time, um, that, yeah. that equipment yeah. will no longer just be in trial but will actually be something that is being used Australia-wide and even, you know, internationally. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah, to just to be able to close that golden hour, as they say, to close mm. the yeah. gap between mm. your presentation as a stroke patient and the point where they start to give you the treatment for whether it's a clot or a bleed. Yeah. No, that's a brilliant, brilliant project and uh, it's just a credit to uh, the modern society that we're going through. You know, the amount, the amount of advances in, in technology is, is incredible. Yeah. I just hope everybody gets behind the Royal Flying Doctor. The Royal Flying Doctor is my passion and uh, you know, I, 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 I just bend over backwards. I'm so glad you were able to, to take some time today, Steve, and, and give, have a chat with me about what happened. And um, we're so lucky to oh, have you. Pleasure. We're so lucky to have you. I mean, oh. you flatlined on the surgery table. You could have died on that yeah. highway. So Yeah. Like I said, he, he had a couple of grabs at me, that guy up there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, not yet. <laughs> exactly. Well, look, I wish you all the best in your, you know, upcoming retirement and your photography and your exploration with your lovely wife and your future travel with your daughter across central australia 
Oh, I can't wait. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you very much, Lana. It's been lovely chatting with you. And I just hope to, to all the listeners, talk about your issues and walk, exercise, keep active. That's the best advice I can give you. Thanks for listening. Word of mouth is always the best promotion for a podcast. So if you enjoy this podcast or a specific story, please share with family and friends. If you haven't already, join our Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community. And you can also send feedback, questions or comments to me directly at lana.mitchell at rfds.org.au. Donations to support the Royal Flying Doctor Service can always be made through our website at flyingdoctor.org.au. The Flying Doctor Podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Coolen. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.